I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's funny because, uh, you know, I am uh, Israeli cuisine. Is a, I was part of the movement that invented it. But back then, when I opened the, the restaurant, I had Caesar salad and hamburger, uh, chicken that was very similar to the lovely chicken that I ate in, uh, what's the name of this restaurant? What, Zuni oh, Cafe? Zuni, of course. Of you course. opened a California cuisine restaurant in Israel. I opened a California cuisine restaurant. 100%. That is Erez Komorowski of Mint Kitchen in New York City. I'm 21 at the time. Here comes this guy walking in with a cooler. Sets it down. I'm like, don't even know what's going on. Opens this box up, and all of a sudden there's this perfume in the room. I'm yeah. like, what is that? Yeah. And then... I learn about white truffles. It's like, oh my God, like this captivating smell. So we still do this dish at Masseria mm -hmm. because for me, like, I don't know if there's a better way to eat truffles because it's tagliini mm -hmm. or tagine in Piedmont mm -hmm. dialect. Garlic, butter, olive oil, anchovies, all melted down, a little bit of toasted walnuts. That's it. And then like Parmesan and like a, Half and then pound make of white it rain. truffles. Yeah. And it just like the salty, the cheese, the butter, the fat, like all of it just like comes together with that beautiful, delicate flavor. And it just like, it's like a symphony happens, but it's three ingredients. And that is Nicholas Stefanelli of Masseria and Officina in Washington, D.C., our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I hope you all are doing well out there. I'm glad to be back with you again after this long hiatus we just endured with our second episode in two weeks, just like it used to be, like it ought to be, like hopefully it will be forever after. Before introducing this week's guest, I want to let everybody know about some exciting news. We have just launched our own website. The address is andrewtalkstochefs.com. That's about as straightforward as it gets. And it is your one-stop shopping location for all things pod-related. On the website, you will find links to all of our episodes. You can play them right from the site or jump over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. You can join our email mailing list. My blog, Tokeland, for any of you who have read that blog, has been subsumed into the site. It is now a page within the Andrew Talks to Chef site. And there's a lot of links at the bottom of the page on the homepage that have links to pages that tell you how to listen to a podcast, if that's something you're unfamiliar with. Uh, it tells you about the bands that provide our music. It tells you how to submit yourself for a client of yours as a guest. It tells you how to become a sponsor. And I'm particularly excited about this. It's a new feature. There is a web-based voicemail feature. If you look for the link that says leave a voicemail, you can activate a microphone leave a voicemail, and perhaps we will play it and respond to it on the air. So I hope that entices you to visit the site and check it out. Again, it is andrewtalkstochefs.com. I've spent a lot of time 
working on it with Status Forward, the company that helped me design it and build it. I'm really thrilled to share it. I think it's very sleek and user-friendly, and I hope you like it. And, uh, you know, get in touch. Leave me some feedback. There's also a Contact Us button if you want to share some feedback. How could it be better? How could it better serve you? In the meantime, I think you'll all find it very useful, and I think you'll find it to be a great way to keep up with us, and I hope you'll join the mailing list. You will get an email every time we drop an episode, and I'd encourage you to go visit that. So we have two great interviews today. The first is Erez Komorowski. Now, Erez is known not as much in the U.S., but in Israel, he's considered one of the founding fathers of modern Israeli cuisine. He's been cooking for several decades. He opened his first U.S.-based restaurant back in the spring called Mint Kitchen. It's in Greenwich Village, New York. Uh, It's got some delicious food. I was able to sample a little of it uh, after our interview. Uh, Erez is a real character. He's a kind of a wise guy. I don't mean wise guy like a smartass. I mean a wise guy. Uh, I loved speaking with him. I think we had a great rapport, great chemistry right off the bat. And then our second interview, which I'll introduce uh, during the mid-show break, is with Nicholas Stefanelli, who I think you will enjoy just as much as Erez. He has the restaurants Masseria and Officina in Washington, D.C., both Italian restaurants. Fascinating interview in its own right for different reasons. I think these are very complimentary interviews. I do want to apologize to both Erez and to Nick. Uh, These interviews were recorded back in the spring, and because of this hiatus that we just wrapped up, they've been kind of sitting on the shelf for a while. I've been eager to share them. I'm glad to finally be able to do that. For that reason, you will notice some some not oddities, but some little quirks. One is toward the end of the interview with Erez, we talk about how they were having these sort of glass garage doors put on the restaurant that would open and make it an open-air restaurant in the spring. At the time we recorded that, that was very tempting. As I'm posting this episode, of course, everybody's closing up their windows and sealing their doors for the fall and the winter in New York. Um, but that that explains that little quirk of timing. Uh, when we get to Nick's interview, you'll hear that because we were talking about some current events uh, in the beginnings of the show, I cut that out, and the interview begins almost like a monologue with him saying where he was born. So my apologies to both those gentlemen for their and my appreciation for their patience, but I did want to explain that to all of you. Without any further ado, I think Erez's biography is very self-explanatory, so I'm going to kick it right over to the interview. This is my sit-down with Erez Komorowski, recorded in the downstairs office at Mint Kitchen in New York City back in April. Here you go. We're in the basement of Mint Kitchen. We'll get to the genesis of this restaurant in a little bit. Because this is sort of, this is your most recent thing. Yes, yeah. completely. Okay. Completely new. Completely two and new. A, two and a half months. Okay. New. So I want to talk about the road that got us, led us to this subterranean office. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's funny to be in, in the basement in New York. Yeah, you came all the way from Israel yeah. to, and you're doing, an, fr- you're doing an interview in a, in a, ba- <laughs> in a basement with uh, whatever that is overhead. Yeah. Anyway. This is New York. This is how we do this. I do this all the time, actually. So, um, well, first of all, just let's start at the very beginning. Tell me, if you would, where you were born and, and where you spent your earliest childhood. 
I was born in Tel Aviv, in the center of Tel Aviv. My grandfather had a, a small factory for a, a refrigeration, refrigerators, mm -hmm. ice refrigerators. With, before, uh, you know, the electric, electric, electric oh. uh, yeah. You mean uh, what, what they used to call an ice box? Ice box, yes. So it was a, it was a, it was a airtight container. Yes. You would put a giant. Was I it don't, a giant I, I block? I don't remember it because yeah. I was very, I wasn't born. Yeah. yeah. But this is what you would put it usually here anyway. Yeah. It would be a giant yeah. block yeah. of ice, and yeah. that was what that was what kept the food. It's amazing, no? And yeah. that my grandfather did it, and uh, and uh, I was born in uh, the center of Tel Aviv. Okay. And, uh, um, my 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 actually, I the the woman that raised me was an Egyptian, and that's what saved my uh, uh, I think uh, uh, flavors. Okay. How, because you... I was introdu introduced in a very young age to. Uh, Maluchia and to okra okay. and to fava bean and to uh, spices that were not uh, um, used by my grandmother who came from Poland. Okay. And so it wasn't, it, it didn't run in my genes. I yeah. was introduced to them by my neighbor. Uh, That's who you're, the woman you're talking about? Yes. The woman who raised you? Yes. Okay. So Egyptian. she was, so uh, she was, on what, she was almost she, like she, a, she, she, she was she, a close friend of the family? Yeah, she was a neighbor. She lived yeah. in my grandfather's uh, building. Okay. So almost like an unofficial aunt. Yes. Yeah. Yes, completely. Yeah. Okay. And completely. she spent a lot of time with you. She sp I spent a lot of time with her. Yeah. And she came from Alexandria. Okay. And she spoke uh, seven languages. She read uh, seven languages. I mean, it was amazing. She was an inspiration to you. Yes. She gave me a lot of love through food, like my mother. Okay. What do you mean? That, you know, it's so funny because people say this all the time, right? That food is a way of receiving love. Food is a way of expressing love. It sounds like such a cliche, except it's totally true. Uh, it, it became a cliche. It became a cliche. But the uh, thing about it that, uh, you know, that when you... Uh, this, is how, this is how I show love. Mm -hmm. This is how uh, my mother showed me love. Um, this is uh, very real for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's easier for me, and I think also for my mother, uh, to show me love and not show and not hug me and not uh, you know, uh, you know. It's easier. It's a, uh, it's not verbal, right? You don't say I love you. Uh, you 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 give someone a chopped liver. Uh -huh. <laughs> Uh, yes, but it yeah. makes total sense. Yes, yeah. it's easier. Well, there are also all these, you know, I've had moments in my life, I'm sure you have and people have, you know, off, sometimes, you know, you, you, you know somebody's going through a difficult time. <clears throat> Maybe they're sick um, or they lost somebody. And w a lot of people respond to that by bringing a home-cooked meal yes. to the house. And there is no, there's nothing like it. There is nothing like it. It's a, it's a, it it makes you feel good. It makes you feel loved. It makes you. Yeah. It's a, it, it's a different way to hug. At what age did you start spending time with this neighbor you're talking about? And what no, was her uh, name? Esther. Esther. Esther Kaminitz. Wow, I love her. Still nowadays. Uh, is she still with us? No, 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 no. no. She was. Uh, she, no, twenty years maybe. Okay. Um. Yeah, um, from from the very beginning. Yeah, my my mother worked in a, in a bank, so um, I was uh, she was my babysitter. Yeah, kind of. 
Yeah, unofficially. Unofficially. Yeah. So this okay. So at what age do you start thinking you might be interested in becoming a professional I I don't I don't cook really, or, I, I mean you I, I think it was in my uh, teens yeah that I started cooking yeah uh, it was uh, very hard on me to cook in my mother's play uh, kitchen because she was very pet, uh, obsessive about uh, uh, cleaning and you know, okay. all so that was stressful all yes so you did. had to return the kitchen to the she, original Condition and when I you never were done. could, and I never could yes. uh, rise to the level of, yeah. uh, you know, if I just change the the angle of uh, yeah. the pepper uh, uh, jar or something, you know. But uh, it's funny because later on, I started my catering business, cooking at her place, and she was very generous of giving me. And and after cleaning with my uh, employees, I had employees. Yeah. Uh, she came and she stormed the kitchen and cleaned everything from the beginning. After they wow, cleaned it. Wow, 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 wow. I think you I should have put her on the payroll. I know, I know, I know, I know. When you were young, did you think you were going to be something else when you grew up? Yes. What did you think you were going to do? I think that I would be a biologist. A biologist? Yes, I loved biology. I studied, this was my major, and... and uh, I loved animals, and I, I was I was a bird uh, watcher. Really, that's mm-hmm. interesting. I have heard it's. I just thought of this the other day, because I was interviewing a gentleman named Ken Frank, who's a chef in California, and he was the third chef that I know of who started off on a path to being a marine biologist. It doesn't surprise me because it's, you know, uh, 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 food comes from nature, and I think. Um, um, get, getting familiar with nature by being a bird watcher mm-hmm. and by uh, uh, all my teens I just I was outside and also my father I forgot to tell you that my father had an uh, almond orchard mm-hmm. a very big one and I used to spend time uh, mainly in the summer mm-hmm. uh, picking the almonds mm-hmm. with uh, families that came from uh, a Druze village okay and so uh, I would be with them uh, around a month in a tent that they built. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, really uh, different back then. And, and they cooked. Um, and there I, 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 I really um, understood what is uh, uh, to get connected to nature. They cooked over well, an open fire? Open fire. Was it with the almond uh, wood? Or almond wood, yeah, and and of course it uh, uh, they hunted mm-hmm. uh, bunnies, yeah, and pigeons. You went back in time, and partridges, yeah, and uh, and also uh, deer, small deer that mm-hmm. we have in Israel. Uh, now they're almost distinct because of uh, distinct or in- extinct, extinct, yeah, extinct. Sorry, uh, that's okay. You should hear my Hebrew. No, no, no. My accent is the most horrible one. And, uh, I, so I, I, I got connected to, to food, I think, through nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, by loving nature, I, 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 I started uh, cooking. And also I cooked with my grandmother. You know, I did cookies with her and with uh, Esther, with the, yeah. my neighbor. So you had a real comfort level with um, being in a kitchen. Yes, I, I I used to be in the kitchen with them. Yeah, with, with the old ladies, kind yeah. of uh, my 
And even as you're, as you're talking, you were just using your hands. So you were developing yes, yes. some skills. Yes, Tactile yes. ability. Oh, right. And then you had completely. the comfort level with nature. Cookies. So you, you had, but so by the time you reached young adulthood, you had an intuition about food. Yes. Right? I, you didn't have to, it sounds like you were someone who didn't, when you grow up like that, immersed in it like that, <clears throat> you very often don't have to um, overthink your cooking. No, it's, uh, it becomes I, an, almost a natural, it is, like when a musician I, plays by ear. I and also yeah, it's it's complete intuition, and I am not a, a I don't cook from my brain. I cook from my stomach. Mm-hmm. That's what I call it. Yes, but it takes a special talent to be able to to do that. It takes a spe- I don't know if it's a talent or it's a, if it's a personality. Okay. Uh, I do most of the things I do. Yeah. Uh, from intuition. Yeah. It's more a romantic approach to life. Yes. Than, uh, well, um, yeah. Yeah. I get that. You you have to do, to be someone like this. I think, for, you know, or at least that's how I cook. Yeah. I mean, yes, but I do think you have to. Whatever you want to call it, you have to be predisposed to. You know, my father on Sunday mornings, rest his soul. But he used to wake up and have a vision. I don't know what the vision was of uh, you know an omelet that he was going to make. Us. Oh really? That's and it was it was hor- It was really bad. Oh really? Oh. Yeah. But he was cooking based on his stomach and his intuition. <laughs> It didn't work out too well. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm I saying. See. <laughs> you would be able to realize what was in your brain, right? Yes, or what was yes. in your gut, what you, want, what you wanted, what you were craving. I, yes. From yeah. very young age, I think I, I felt what I want to taste. Yeah. And I knew how to get there. Exactly. Okay. So what is it? I, I think you may be the first guest I've had on the show from Israel. Growing up when you did, what was... Um, at that time, how was the profession of cooking, of being a professional baker, how was that viewed in Israel? When I went to a cooking, class, a cooking school yes. in Paris, yeah. in, uh, I, it was considered to be worse than a plumber. It was. Oh, <laughs> this was the, the, from the family I came yeah, it was unheard of. Mm-hmm. It was horrible. They were upset. For my parents, wow! And it was so horrible for my parents that I had to enroll to the Sorbonne to study philosophy, and I studied philosophy parallel to the cooking school, just in order to quieten the to make it more respectable. Yeah, to make that it was more, the cover story. Yeah, this is was that a, what they would tell their friend? Would they tell their their friends that you I, were at the Sorbonne? I, I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. <laughs> okay, so I believe so. Yes. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. That's tough. No, 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 no. That's not. But the, it is kind it of. It wasn't tough for me. By the way, that's a lot of work for a cover story. Yeah, that that wasn't tough for me. I I I stopped after one one year and I committed myself to cooking. Yeah, and when I came back to Israel. Uh, I started doing catering for the milieu of my parents, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, then it became a little, a little better. And even after I opened my bakery, yeah, and it became a great success. I was uh, thirty-four years old. Okay. Uh, my father told me after a year, you know, if you want to study, if if you want, I can give you whatever you need, so you can study. 
in the university. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy back then. Wow. And this was after you were established. After I became a star. Yeah. More, more yeah. than established. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, can you talk, before we get too far out of your teenage years, um, you, I, I know, and I know, I mean, I checked it, but I, know, I knew the answer had to be yes. There is in Israel compulsory military service. Yes. Can you, t can you just talk to me about that, what that was like having that in your, you know, life as you're growing up, knowing it's coming, and then what, what's, it, what's that service like in Israel? I mean, everybody does it. Yeah. For me, military was very, very, very difficult. My brother was in the commando kind of elite commando. Like the special forces? Yes, yeah. yes, very nice. <laughs> Like the Navy SEALs and all the equivalent of, of it. You say, I wish people could see your face when you say and, this. And, you and, you and, say this with, I don't know what, you're, it's almost... And he's four years older than mine. Oh, than gosh. So, okay, uh, lucky you. Four years older than... Right. That means that it, it was a big cloud over my head. Sure. That's big, tough for uh, a kid. This is why I became a gay, of course. This is why I became gay. You think gay. that's why? Of course. Okay. Uh, and so... Um, for me, the military was horrible, especially because of the, uh, you know, uh, the war. Mm -hmm. I, I had, I was in uh, the military during the Lebanon war. Yeah, and it was a tough one. Um, yeah, it was uh, very difficult. Yeah, I became an officer. I was an officer. Yeah, yeah. In spite of yourself, like almost by. You weren't looking for that. Yeah, you know, when you, you, are, you when you get into the system, it's a system that uh, crushes you and builds something new, uh, new. Yeah, but people would say that's the only way to get everyone on the same page. Right? I'm not a militarist. No, 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 <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's and not I for you. No, no, yeah, no, no. I mean, there's people who would talk uh, the same way about a professional kitchen, if we're honest. You know, that you need everyone to function in the same way, to think the same. It's a, it's, it's a unit, right? Uh, it's not military. Yeah. It's not military. No. For me, kitchen is not military at all. Yeah. You take a, a different... A completely different. Yeah. Okay, but... You, you, you smile. <laughs> you, don't, you don't suffer. Before we get to all that, though, <clears throat> can, I ask, can I ask what age you, you came out? Were you, were you out when you were in the military? Were you, was, yes. was that allowed there? Yes, yes. And what was that? Was, that, was, a, was it yeah. more liberal there than it is here? It is more liberal than it is here. Yeah. Uh, I think it's not by, by a ch uh, coincidence that Tel Aviv became a gay destination, you know. Mm -hmm. I think it's more liberal, but it wasn't easy. Yeah. It wasn't easy, no. People gave you a hard time. No, they didn't give me a hard time because I was tough. Uh-huh. And I wasn't ashamed. Uh-huh. So I wasn't vulnerable. You get out of the service. How do you start pursuing? I mean, the thing you first became known for was baking. Yes, but I was first. First, I went to off the army. I went to Paris to study cooking, mm -hmm. and I did my stage there in the south of France. And then I came back to Israel, and and uh, opened my catering business, which I called uh, the futuristic studio. Okay, a cooking uh, studio. It it was very. Um, since I studied the philosophy, 
I got I got I got a new Marinetti, which was uh, and the Futurist Manifesto. The Futurist Manifesto, okay. and he, he wrote a cookbook. That I did not know. And he wrote a cookbook, okay. which is very a Futurist cookbook. A Futurist cookbook. Okay. Uh, the new, not taste the tasty, the new, and I became uh, to cook like this. I wanted to cook only the new. It which at that time meant what? Like what would be that an time, example at that time? I, I was uh, yeah. I, I had a uh, French education. Yeah. So it uh, so it, uh, weird stuff, weird stuff. Just uh, the look was more important. The, the the meaning was more important than the flavor. Yeah. Uh, which is very um, interesting because uh, later on I, I I switched 180 degrees, and for me I do not almost don't do not plate. Uh, uh, my dishes. I just throw them on the plate mm -hmm. and I believe that the, the, the way it arranges, it, it's the right way. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, the same. The way it falls, don't touch. This is it. And so uh, it was 180 degrees, mm -hmm. uh, different than what I do now. Mm -hmm. uh, small things, little canapes, um, soups made out of uh, uh, apricot and beer. Because it's summer, mm -hmm. uh, uh, weird stuff, uh, uh, but very interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I uh, went to Japan to study uh, uh, kaiseki uh -huh. uh, by chance. Now, how would you define kaiseki? I mean, I define it as like a tasting, tasting menu, tasting menu, but very formal, mm -hmm. and 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 you cannot move. From the tradition, what do you mean? There is a tradition. The composition on the plate, the okay. composition, the, the, the everything is a symbol. Everything is <laughs> okay. Has to be. Uh, I I and when I came back from uh, from Japan, I went I went to California mm -hmm. uh, because my partner did uh, his PhD over there in Berkeley, mm -hmm. and we lived in San Francisco for five years. Your life partner. Yes. Yeah. Uh, for the last uh, 32 years. Congratulations. And so uh, we lived there in San yeah. Francisco. And I was uh, lucky to um, to be in the Bay Area yeah. exactly when all the Californian cuisine erupted. And, uh, yeah, you, am I right? You got there in 89? Yeah. Okay. You know, Wolfgang Park, Jeremiah Tower, yeah. uh, uh, the Flying Saucer. Yeah. I mean, wow, it was amazing. What do you mean the flying? You mean the wine? No, no. Flying Saucer was a, one of the best restaurants. Okay. Uh, in a small restaurant. Okay. By a Moroccan. Uh, okay, in San Francisco. Oh. <laughs> Twenty-four seats, kind okay. of. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he died. Okay. Two years ago, I, I heard. But what did being in California do for you? Coming well, from where you... Because you come I, from Israel, you'd spend time in France, you spent time in Japan. I mean, you'd had a lot of exposure to a lot of things. What was... What was... What did California... Because you didn't... You came there because your partner was going there. Right? You yeah. weren't on a... You know, like you went to Japan to study Kaiseki. Yeah, you went to yeah. France to do... Right? But you didn't come... You came to California for personal reasons. I, I became a food stylist in California. Mm-hmm. And I, I um, for photo shoots. Yes. Okay. For uh, photo shoots. Yeah. And I 
I was uh, exposed to the emergence of the wine industry, the emergence of the um, um, goat cheese, the uh, the amazing olive oils, the 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 the, the and the fusion. Mm-hmm. I I did the the I was the f- food stylist for uh, Terry Carpenter. Yeah. And, and because his wife was the photographer, uh-huh. uh, did uh, she w- she w- she was into glass. Okay. And she uh, and, and fusion comes from glass. Uh, doing, I mean, the fusion. You fuse. This is so interesting because I'm. I mean, I. Norman, you know who Norman Van Aken is. He's no. a chef down in Florida. Okay. He's, he was best friends with Charlie Trotter. Okay. And Norman gave a speech in 1988 where he talked about the word fusion applying it to food but he took it from jazz music wow because it was when you bring together wow. different styles well, well, right well, you know great mind thinks alike so, so i think yeah, may, yeah. May, they may have both gotten there the same way right but it's interesting that you i'd never heard of that it came from the world of glass that's new yes. to me yes um but uh, whatever that's that's what i that's yeah. what they told me it's fine uh, and 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 anyway i i, I discovered how Uh, a new cuisine can emerge from uh, very different um, cultures. Yes. From a, um, um, a different uh, fusion. Combining different. Combining uh, uh, the, the Japanese uh, uh, influence, the uh, South of France influence, the Italian influence, the Chinese influence, yes. the, the Mexican influence, the uh, Pacific Rim Uh, yeah. down the south etc uh, uh, yeah. etc et and and uh, something uh, amazing happened and then of course I got addicted to sourdough bread mm-hmm. I went few blocks every morning to buy uh, the bread that I liked freshly baked freshly baked walnut bread I remember <laughs> a bull of by acme Uh, Akmi was the guy that uh, started uh, to do the pizza f- for Shepanese uh, okay and then he, yeah. he, he started yeah, yeah, his yeah. baking and it Steve, was the, uh, yeah, yeah and it was the be- yeah. the best uh, bread company in in the bay area mm-hmm. uh, but metropolis was also and, and there were a few other uh, excellent uh, sourdough breads i mean uh, bakeries and so i got addicted to and i started studying it Because you know, for me, that started to cook in the eighties, um, baking bread was to make uh, small buns with sesame on top, yeah, or poppy seeds, yeah. Uh, it was. Uh, What did you in a restaurant? If you went to a restaurant, it's right because in <clears throat> in in the U.S., right? It's starting now. People are starting to charge for it, or maybe they don't give it to you, but. You know, it used to be if you went to a nice restaurant, there was always bread. They gave yeah. you a bread basket, right? Of course. But a lot of those people, I'm going back to the 80s, the 90s, like in New York, most restaurants got their bread from the same three or four places, right? Yeah. They, they, very few people were baking their own bread, yeah, right? Yeah, very few. What was that culture? Forget the sourdough for a minute. Just what was the culture of bread in Israel in terms of in restaurants? Was there like... It was, it was, it was... So simple bread, so simple bread. We are talking about those uh, sweet buns. Okay, that was in it. Big restaurants, sweet yeah. buns. Okay. Sweet buns. Okay. Yeah, it 
Okay. Very, so similar. It was very simple. It was just sort simple. of. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't an issue. Yeah. It wasn't something that people put a lot of thought into. No. Yeah. And then I and and then I started studying it. Mm-hmm. And specializing in it. And uh, when I came back to Israel. A year after I opened the bakery, mm-hmm. sourdough baking. That um, and I did the uh, nice things. You know, a year later I. I opened a, a restaurant adjacent to it, and it's funny because um, you know I'm, I am Israeli cuisine is a, I was part of the movement that invented it, mm-hmm. and and but back then when I opened the the restaurant, I had Caesar salad, yeah, and hamburger, okay. Uh, chicken that was very similar to the lovely chicken that I ate in, uh, what's the name of this restaurant? What, Zuni know. Cafe? Zuni, of course. Of you course. opened a California cuisine restaurant I opened in a Californ- Israel. I opened a California <laughs> cuisine restaurant. Uh, uh, 100%. <laughs> what was it called? Eres. Then, slowly, yeah. slowly, I got, uh, uh, I understood what the Californians did. And and I started uh, um, verbalizing, thinking, and cooking uh, more locally, and and using uh, um, recipes from my culture mm-hmm. and from my neighbors' cultures mm-hmm. and from uh, Moroccan mm-hmm. and uh, Polish and Tunisian and Egyptian and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I started using eggplants. Uh, more more than uh, uh, endive mm-hmm. and dive. Okay. And and, and 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 more fatouche than Caesar. Okay. And this was this was the big lesson you took from California. The big lesson was uh, many lessons. Okay. I had many lessons. First, of course, because of Japanese baby greens. Mm-hmm. So I started baby greens to mm-hmm. to uh, with with an, an uh, agriculture. Mm-hmm. You say, uh, but a farmer. You started growing. Farmer, you farmer, started growing. Farmer. Yeah, with a farmer. You partnered with a farmer. No, I, you I did commissioned it. him. Okay, and I, right. did, and yeah. I said, listen, said, this is what I want. I want, I want this and this and that. And, and he started growing it for yes, you. Yes, and he was a genius uh, farmer. Okay, and he started growing it. And so uh, you know, and many things, yeah. many, so many things. Uh, um, I, I I studied a lot in California. I think mm-hmm. I studied that uh, you you don't have to be so heavy that you can uh, you are not uh, supposed to be obliged only to one culinary theme like the Japanese or the French mm-hmm. uh, or the Italian. You know, if they if you, they, you do something that is uh, not exactly one hundred percent like your grandmother, if you put one sage leaf. Right. More. Yeah. Or if you put uh, 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 too much garlic, right. or if you put Parmesan on a seafood uh, pasta, it's a death sentence. Okay. 20 years well, ago, yeah. the tradition of, yes. of, of those yes. uh, big cuisines yes. <coughs> was very, very, very strict. Yes. Nowadays, you know, everything changed. Everything yeah. changed because yeah. of the Californian cuisine. Yeah. I mean, Californian cuisine uh, uh, influenced. Uh, uh, like a boomerang, yes. the, those uh, 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 the origin cuisines, right? Were, sure. 
So how was what you were doing received in Israel when you started doing it? I, I think uh, it was received uh, uh, in a very good way. Yeah? What year was your first restaurant? This restaurant you're talking about? 96. Okay. 96. Okay. And what was the food scene like at that time? Was there other, were there other things similar to French. that? French. 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 The French hegemony was still... Uh, in control. In control, okay. we were completely provincial. We thought that uh, our ethnic cuisines are not uh, equivalent to the big French. Because uh, it's not fancy enough. Because it's, it's not. not yeah. uh, because uh, we thought that uh, challah is inferior to brioche. Right. We thought that uh, you know that. Uh, um, yeah. Eggplant bread is inferior to baguette. Yeah. We, we believe that uh, beef bourguignon is much better than uh, brisket. Yeah. Well, that one might be true. Depends how you do it. <laughs> Depends how you do it. I was with you until that one. <laughs> Depends how you do it. Depends how you do it. No, but you know, if you, you do a Moroccan tagine. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or pkela, Tunisian pkela. Yes, I understand. With couscous, it's, yeah. uh, it's not uh, inferior to uh, bourguignon with yeah. uh, uh, pomme de terre. Isn't it amazing the sort of stranglehold that, the, that French cuisine had over so much of the Western world? For centuries. Yeah, but it, was, it is all based, it was the same in the U.S. It was based on, an in, they... they Forgive me, any French listeners, but I do believe this is true. Both things I'm about to say. I think in ter- when it came to food, for sure, they had a superiority complex. And I think the rest of us had an inferiority complex. Ah, we had an inferiority complex completely. And we, completely. We, I, I mean, we, we, sure, in, we definitely felt that way in the U.S. I mean, there was nothing more sophisticated than French food. Of course. Right? And, 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 and nothing in, more pedestrian than and, American and, and food. And people came from uh, North Africa yeah. to Israel in the 50s. Yeah. And they brought with them amazing heritage. Yeah. They brought with them amazing food. Yeah. Uh, 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 people came from Lebanon. Yeah. Uh, people came from Syria. People yeah. came from Turkey. And they brought with them amazing recipes. And we all felt that it didn't matter if you are Tur- from a Turkish uh, uh, origin or from uh, Egyptian origin or from a Tunisian origin. We all felt that the French... Steak au poivre is better than all that we do. That's where the restaurant, that, that's where... Uh, what do you think that was? I think, I, I, my own theory is it was really about, um, it's tech, it was, I think a lot of that was about technique. I think a lot of the other cuisines you're describing did not require a level of technique that French food did. No, 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 no. It wasn't the technique. It's uh, no. It's uh, the. It's the, the answer is, the French language was considered the only language for diplomacy. Mm-hmm. They were the power, and uh, it's uh, also a kind of a, um, I think it 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 was a political thing. How so? About the they food? were like the Catholic Church. Okay, so it was like they, dogma. Yeah, it's, it was a dogma. It was just passed down, not, not, not questioned. We believed what they said, that they, okay. they are uh, superior to us. We believed what they said. Yeah. Well, 
I mean, here in the U, I mean, I would say as an American, I, I think, you know, at the time, if you went back to the, you know, 1970s and before when it came to food, that was a true statement. Uh, uh, but uh, what, 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 okay. I separate food that was done yep. by grandmothers in their, in their homes. Yes. Greek um, grandmothers yeah. or Japanese grandmothers yeah. or Chinese grandmothers yes. or um, Turkish Mm-hmm. Or Afghani mm-hmm. grandmothers yeah. that were in the state. Yeah, they cooked very good food for their yes. families. Hundred percent. Restaurants were different. Yes. That's what I'm saying. I'm talking about restaurants. Yes. Restaurants? No. Yeah. Restaurant? No. Restaurant were steak au poivre. Yeah. Right. Steak au poivre. Right. If you were duck uh, orange. If yeah. you were affluent enough, you went to a French restaurant. Yes. French restaurant. Yeah. And it was crazy, and I understood. That it's crazy because I felt in that in California suddenly they bring me fresh leaves on the on the plate. Wow, fresh leaves, yeah. fresh veggies. Uh, uh, wow, wow! It was so different, mm-hmm. less heavy. We don't have good uh, butter in Israel. Mm-hmm. We don't have good butter. Uh, uh, we are an olive oil country. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the Mediterranean. We cannot do good brioche. We cannot do good brioche. We don't have the same flour, but we have a challah, a challah bread. Wow, a challah is excellent. Mm-hmm. It's not less than a, than a brioche. No. No, okay. Uh, 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 I agree. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah. and, and, and slowly I, I, I became <coughs> the, um, a kind of a, a ambassador. I don't know if ambassador is the right word, but uh, I, I, I started to, I, I wrote a book about it. Fresh Israeli cuisine that mm-hmm. uh, stated what is, in my opinion, is uh, Israeli cuisine and mm-hmm. uh, kitchen, and, um, and and I started to be very local. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yes. Yeah. This is. I mean. It must also, have... also in my bread. I, I. Sorry. It's okay. I stopped doing uh, walnut bread. Yeah. Uh, like I, what I loved in California. Yeah. And I started doing uh, uh, eggplant and uh, feta cheese. Okay. Uh, I, I did hisop uh, and sesame bread, uh, you know, local breads. That uh, And since I was a chef before be, uh, becoming a, a baker, mm-hmm. I, uh, um, I cooked my breads. That, uh, that means I, I in, um, um, introduced uh, lots of veggies into the doughs. Mm-hmm. So um, I could do a, a bread, you know, with uh, roasted tomatoes and uh, olives and uh, inside, and inside. Not on. T- these are not toppings. This is inside, 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 inside. Like a roulade mm-hmm. or, or uh, yeah, yeah. So this also, uh, I mean, this got a great reception, right? You're really, yeah, yeah, you great. are really famous for this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you, are you, I mean, it's funny, you said before, like, you became a star, right? When I'm sitting here with you right now, I mean, you seem like a very calm person. You don't, uh, like, uh, did you have to do, like, a lot of television? Do you, like, like, when you say star, that implies certain things. Do you enjoy that part of it? Can you kind of turn it on when you do that? Yes. uh, Do you uh, perform? Yes. In that way? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm 
Yeah, the, uh, yeah. I, th- I think I, I, I like it because I didn't start doing it when I was very young and I yeah. wasn't uh, confused by it. Right. I was uh, mature enough yes. and my ego was relaxed yes. when I started doing it. So I, I, it wasn't... Uh, uh, yeah, you weren't so seduced I, by it. I wasn't seduced And it didn't it. ruin you. No, it didn't. Yeah. It didn't. Yeah. I, you were able to keep it in perspective. Yes, and I live in the mountains and I have my chickens and my uh, veggies that, that balances it. Yeah. Uh, for 100%. So it's balanced. Tell me about this restaurant that we're sitting in here. Mint Kitchen is a, a, a nice project uh, that we did here. Uh, two guys uh, from Israel. One is actually lives in New York, but okay. he originally is from Israel. Yeah. Uh, um, came to me and offered me to open a restaurant in uh, New York. Okay. And to build a culinary uh, concept. Mm-hmm. And how would you, it's called Mint Kitchen. First of all, why mint? Mint, because I love mint. <laughs> okay. Nana, nana. We call mint, mint is a nana in Yeah, Hebrew. okay. And I love mint, and I love, I love to drink uh, mint tea. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, so that's a personal statement. No, it's also mint is very Israeli. Yeah. Mint is fresh. Mint is summer. Mint yeah. Is, uh, mint is a lot of things. Okay. So wh- how would you describe the concept here? It's a, the heart of the kitchen is a, a, a taboon. That's a wood-fired, mm-hmm. uh, not wood, unfortunately, because of the authorities here. Welcome to New York, yeah. yeah. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Um, I wish people could see your face when you want to be very um, dismissive of something. No, it's, I'm not dismissive. I, I, I understand, or, uh, you know. Yeah. It's a 10 million uh, people city. Yeah. Yeah. If uh, all of us would uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. burn but wood, still. it would be... Some uh, people know what they're doing, though. But, but uh, Anyway, it's, so it's a taboon. So it's a taboon, and, and, and all, of it go, all of the veggies and the proteins go into the taboon mm-hmm. for a very short time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cauliflowers, the, the eggplant, the, 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 all of it. I mean, and the green beans from... Uh, that we are going to have on a summer uh, mm-hmm. menu. That's why I'm here to develop it and, okay. and to finish it. Kind yeah. Of. And to uh, to uh, and, and lots of fresh leaves, lots of uh, parsley, fresh parsley, fresh cilantro, mm-hmm. fresh dill, fresh oregano, uh, uh, and lo- and lemon juice, mm-hmm. salt, and a little chili. That's, my, that's our poetics here. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, very simple. We do not uh, make a, a chicken into a souffle of um, any thought. Uh, we do not uh, interfere too much with the actual flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, we do salmon uh, with falafel crust mm. in the taboon. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, think we, I think, I hope we found a way to uh, um, fuse together uh, American audience because I cook for Americans here, yeah, and uh, and we cook with American um, uh, ingredients mm-hmm. with Israeli uh, uh, lang- culinary language, mm-hmm. my culinary language. Mm-hmm. That means that, uh, um, for example, Caesar salad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't do it with Caesar sauce, with the t- traditional. We do it with avocado. 
which is very Israeli. Okay. And we, so what does the avocado replace? This avocado replaces... Everything? Uh, uh, avocado, lemon, salt, chili. Anchovy or no? No anchovy. No anchovy. No anchovy. So Uma, you... you Umami comes from the avocado. You puree the avocado? I puree the avocado with the lemon juice and the olive oil and uh, uh, into a creamy sauce. And this is the sauce, but uh, we serve it with roasted avocado on top. Okay. Two kinds of avocados. Yeah. Flavors. Uh-huh. Simple, uh, but... Uh, it it's give a nice twist, and we do our own bread, which is kind of a, a we call it a bun bread, mm-hmm. flat bread with the coriander seeds and the and the oregano. Mm-hmm. I wish we had a, we could use fresh hyssop, but we don't. We cannot find fresh hyssop here. Mm. What I was going to ask what what are the what can you not? Hyssop, hyssop. That's the fresh ma- fresh hyssop. You cannot find. Okay. You have wonderful isop, uh, dry isop, but uh, you cannot find a fresh isop. Mm. What? A, wait a minute. What about hummus? You must do hummus well, here. Well, you know, yes, we are doing hummus. Thank you. We are doing hummus, um, but we are doing a masabacha. Masabacha is a warm hummus. That means that we are uh, not uh, making it into a paste. Yeah. And and I'm not using uh, chickpeas. What? I'm not doing chickpeas. Is it still hummus if you don't yes, use chickpeas? Yes, yes, that's what we uh, we call it. Uh, yes, uh, but you would or would anyone else call it hummus without chick? I'm just asking. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, the, the, because it's like a, um, you do a frittata. Yeah, with uh, this and that or that. Yes, you can do hummus with uh, uh, fava beans. You can do hummus with. Uh, you can, like in, gazpacho. In, in modern days, like yes. gazpacho. People, yes, most yes, people think gazpacho yes. is just yes, cement, but you can actually we, we, yeah, we, whatever. We just break all recipes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're doing so it with uh, 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 chana dal. With what? Chana dal. Okay. Uh, which is an Indian uh, small uh, yellow pea. Okay. And uh, it's very tasty. It's sweeter and uh, sweeter. Yeah. And it's very tasty. And, and it's and warm. Of course, it's warm and it's done to <laughs> order with garlic. We crush it uh, in, uh, pestle, with pestle okay. and water, the, the garlic and the chili and the fresh lemon juice. Yeah, yeah. And on the menu, we it's just called hummus. I, uh, how do you I don't know. Okay. Jaffa hummus, yeah. Jaffa hummus. Okay. Sounds great. It's uh, it's great because it's uh, fresh and because this is how uh, we eat it in Israel. You know, uh, uh, we eat it fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we eat it with uh, pita bread, mm-hmm. and we don't uh, use uh, chips. You know, to it's not a dip for us. It's it's uh, actually it's not a dip yeah. for us. Yeah. It became a dip in in, in the states. It's yes. interesting. Everything can be a dip. Yeah, everything. Did you know that? Yeah, I know. Well, I know. I know. I know. Okay. What are, what are there some of the other challenges? What are the challenges of doing what you do here in the states? I think I think here you can get everything nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're working with uh, organic tahini mm-hmm. that they do here, uh, Sydney Mill, you know, in the Chelsea market. Okay. Um, uh, you can get everything here. What about? Um, training an American team here? What's the biggest lessons you've had to impart about Israeli food to an American workforce? This was a very, 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 very good lesson for me because 
uh, when you uh, say to an Israeli guy, take the tahini and open it, he knows wh what it means. He knows that you take the raw tahini, you put some water and some lemon juice and some salt, a little salt, and you open the tahini. We call it to open the tahini. Oh, okay, means to, to sort of... To, to make it from raw to an uh, uh, yeah. eatable... Uh, yeah. prepare it. Prepare it. Uh, dilute it, mm -hmm. mainly. Open it. Mm -hmm. So he knows what you mean when you say to an American uh, cook, "Open the tahini for me." He doesn't know what you are saying. Mm -hmm. He thinks that you are uh, that you don't uh, <laughs> that you are not okay. <laughs> what is to open? It's not a door. It's not a safe. Okay. Uh, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, uh, so it uh, forced me to to explain more. But uh, but I have to say that I brought with me uh, Sushef that became his, uh, the executive chef here. Okay. Because I'm not here. I come and go. Mm -hmm. I come and go. Uh, so. Uh, and he's Israeli. He's Israeli. Okay. I, uh, and I trained him. Yeah. For considerable amount of time and, okay. and he knows my language so got it without it without him his name is Nir yeah. and without Nir I wouldn't be able to do it interesting unless you moved here unless I moved yeah here. but that's not happening that's not happening <laughs> okay do you tr do any tr other travel around I mean you spend a lot of time in California you're in New York do you travel much around the state have you been to many other cities no, around the US no, no. No, no, really, no, I, I, don't, I didn't. Hmm. I, I, I want to. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of food I think you would enjoy in this country. Yeah, I want to, I want to. I think you would love getting down south and like having some real barbecue. Wow, well, I know. I think that would be, you would love that, I know, right? I know, I know, I, sh I ought to do it. Yeah, that kind of thing. I ought to do it, I know. Yeah. I'm an ignorant. No. No, I mean, in American, I, do, I really don't know the roots of American uh, uh, kitchen. Yeah. I don't. Well, it's... I know the... Most people don't. I mean, it's so diverse. It's such a huge country. Yeah. Yeah. So what What for you sort of... I mean, you mentioned a few... You mentioned the salmon with the falafel crust. And what What for you are so, sort of epitomizes what you're trying to do here? Are there certain dishes? Fresh. Fresh. Fresh leaves. Fr uh, 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 light. Healthy. But without, we do not fry anything. Everything is in the tabun. Yeah. Um, and, and lemon juice, chili, cilantro or parsley or oregano. You have it in your mouth with a little roasting flavor. That's it. Chicken, roasted chicken with doha. Doha is a... We call it sesame rub here, mm -hmm. but uh, actually it's a doa. Doa is an Egyptian mm -hmm. um, spice that uh, is made out of uh, crushing in a mortar with a mortar, I mean, mortar and pestle. And pestle, yeah. Uh, the sesame and coriander seeds mm -hmm. roasted and cumin seeds and mm -hmm. uh, black pepper uh, into some sort of a rub that yeah. You, a wonderful flavor that the Egyptian woman introduced me when I was very young. Wow. Because I'm Polish. How do I know uh, uh, Doha? 
Mm-hmm. And, and so, and we do things that are not, uh, that, are, that are very um, accessible, mm-hmm. modest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well. And it's a modest, it's very modest and uh, clean yeah. flavor. Okay. Well, I'm excited to try it. You're going to try it now. I'm going to try it now? Yes. I am? Yes. Okay. Of course. Yes, well. chef. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're, the restaurant, I should say, I'll probably have said this in the introduction, but we're on University Place, which is sort of in the central part of Greenwich Village. It's just below, it's two seconds below Union Square. So if you're in that part of town, that's where Mint Kitchen is and you can't miss it. It's on the east side of the street, and it's big, open. I just saw they were putting in uh, yes. kind of... Uh, they just did it today and tonight. People, for people who know the restaurant Barbudo, very, these very, that'll be familiar, these sort of glass garage-style doors that lift up. Yes. And uh, so it's open air at this time of year, which is great. Yes. All the best with it. Thank you. And uh, great meeting you. Great talking to you. Thank you. My theme song and break music is from After School Special's album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. And welcome back to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Erez Komorowski. Before I introduce Nicholas Stefanelli, I just want to mention once again, as we did at the top of the show, in case you fast-forwarded over that, we just launched our Andrew Talks to Chefs website this week. The address is andrewtalkstochefs.com. It is your one-stop shopping for all things related to the podcast. I hope you will take a look. Consider signing up for the email mailing list. You'll get an email every time an episode posts, and also anytime I post to the Tokeland blog, which is now part of the Andrew Talks to Chefs website. I would also encourage any of you listeners out there to follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. That is at Chef Podcast. And as always, if you're so inclined, one of the ways people do find the podcast is by searching around various platforms. One of the ways that shows reach the top of those search results is by racking up listener reviews and ratings. That is especially true at Apple Podcasts. So if you are an Apple Podcast listener and you'd be so kind as to drop us a rating or especially write us a review, we'd really appreciate it. Okay, I now want to introduce Nicholas Stefanelli. Again, as with Erez, my apologies to Nick. This interview was uh, on tap for quite a while while we were on our extended hiatus at the end of the summer and early fall. But Nicholas and I sat down at our friend Danny Abrams' restaurant, The Mermaid Inn, which is one of our kind of home away from home in the city that we use for on-site interviews. When we don't have a a New York-based chef, sometimes we need to squat in a friend's restaurant. And Danny lets us use his Mermaid Inn restaurants in New York City for some of those. We met back in June, and the interview, as I said at the top of the show, begins slightly abruptly because I I took out some of the talk we were doing about some stuff that was happening uh, around New York that week. But Nicholas is the chef, firstly, of Masseria, 
in Washington, D.C., and then more recently opened Officina, which I'm sort of eager to go to. It's one of these sort of multi-concept within a concept Italian restaurant, cafe, butcher shop, gelateria. There's a bar. Um, there's actually an Amaro bar. Um, kind of all things to all people if you love Italian food. It sounds quite wonderful. And I found this to be a very interesting interview, uh, not just for Nick's love of Italian food, and also he's he's half Greek, which we talk about, but also Greek food and Greek culture. But I think as much as any interview we've done, I think we get into sort of some of the nuts and bolts of becoming a good business person as a chef restaurateur, of becoming a good manager, uh, of, of learning how to manage those parts of your professional life. I also think that Nick has a real um, reverence for food history. He's obviously very serious about understanding the traditions and the and the history behind a lot of the dishes and, and foods that they serve and, and offer at his restaurant and, and butcher shop and gelateria and, and on and on and on. Uh, and that is kind of woven through the interview as well. Um, anyway, I'm dying to visit his restaurants next time I'm in D.C. But in the meantime, we have this interview. So here you go. My sit-down with Nicholas Stefanelli, recorded back in June in New York City. I was born in Washington, D.C. Okay, and grew up... You grew up there. Mostly your, most of your lived life. Lived in New York for a little bit, uh -huh. but pretty much lived in D.C. for my okay. whole life. What kind of kid were you? I don't know. You have to ask my mom. <laughs> <laughs> you blacked it out. Um, <laughs> were you a happy kid? Yeah. Okay. Uh, small neighborhood, group of friends. Yeah. Grew up in a Catholic school system, playing okay. sports. Yeah. So in a very competitive era. Yeah. Um, what, were to, you an individual sports or group? Uh, baseball, football. Went to a very competitive high school, DeMatha, yeah. that was, you know, it teaches you to strive and seek excellence and continue to push and drive. So. And you took to all that? Yeah. As opposed to, like, it was an all as boys, opposed to going against the grain of that? I mean, when you're going to school and you're playing sports, it was an all-boys school, or it yeah. is an all-boys school. So yeah. it kind of puts you in a different perspective to focus because uh -huh. you're – with a bunch of your friends. You're goofing off, you're training, yeah. you're studying. Yeah. You're, so it gives you a really different perspective as opposed to having to get dressed and worried about the girl in third period or this people. Yeah. Or, you know, so it's like, it, it really kind of like levels that playing field to let mm -hmm. you focus. A lot of people say they're from DC, but I've met very few people who are actually from DC proper. Did you actually grow up in the city? I grew up 10 minutes outside of the city. Virginia? Maryland. Maryland. So in PG County. There's... We have the metropolitan area, which the Beltway sits around. So everything that's kind of in that Beltway is yeah. more or less affected by the city. So, yeah, sure. And from like the late 60s, people started moving out. And that's when suburbia starts to happen. Mm -hmm. So people were moving out of the city yeah. into bigger homes yes. and then commuting back into the city. So yes. that's kind of what has been happening. And then like 10 years ago, people started moving back into the city. Got it. And the city got this really beautiful energy to it. So now mm -hmm. there's density and there's people in the streets and there's neighborhoods that are developing so there's this really interesting period that's going on where it's like there's this renaissance of the city that's happening and people are finding new places that they would never have gone to 10 15 years ago and yes. now there is a great filipino restaurant or there's this awesome pizzeria or they're going to a wine bar and yeah it's, you know it, it's a really beautiful thing to watch take the metamorphosis. Can I ask what the cultural makeup of your family is? Um, half Italian and half Greek. Okay. So which parent was which? My father's Italian. My mother's Greek. Okay. There's 
two Christmases. There's two Easter's. There's a lot of food. Yeah. Um, Greek Easter's huge, right? Greek Easter's massive. We just got back from Greece. We spent Greece and Sparta in the yeah. villages there. And it was a whole, like, it's bigger than New Year's, mm-hmm. to, put it, to put it in, like, context for yeah. people that wouldn't have experienced it. Yeah. It's, it's the biggest day. Um, How so? It's just what a, happens? So you go to Mass at midnight. Yeah. Everybody, the church is pitch black. You light a candle. The next candle goes to the next candle. And then by the time everything's illuminated. Yeah. And then everybody, after Mass is over, everybody goes home. And you eat this soup called Margarita, which is, uh, it's the liver and the spleen and the heart and the kidneys all cooked down with rice and then thickened with eggs and lemon and it's how you break your fast after fasting for 40 days interesting um, is that considered an offshoot of an ag- avgolemino is it like an, it's is it a family similar, of abgolemino soups similar, similar process to not, it there's a bunch of soup recipes that end up getting thickened the same way so got like, it. we had a tripe soup that was done the same way that thickens and enriches mm-hmm. it um and then you go to bed and the next day everybody wakes up and then it's a party like they had a DJ playing. I mean, yeah. Is it There's, a movable thing? Like, do you go hopping from house to house? We did two different places. Okay. At one point, somebody broke out a shotgun and was shooting in the air. Like, it, I mean, not it at worked. anything. No, just, just, just out to of celebration. The day. Yeah. <laughs> fireworks okay. like it's right. i mean it's a there's a lot of wine there's a lot yeah. of dancing there's i mean it's there's a ton of food it's i mean it was it's it's it was a beautiful experience had you not done that before had no and we perfect we purposely went over two experiences so there's also like this lenten fasting that happens so seeing the dishes of the vegetables like yeah. removing all the meat yeah Removing all the fish, yeah. removing all these pieces, yeah. and then it's like you're working up into this moment. Yes. So. Cool. So you mentioned having two Easter's, to, right? So, two so gr- both of your both cultures were present growing up. Mm-hmm. They peacefully coexisted. <laughs> I was baptized Greek Orthodox, raised Roman Catholic. Okay. <laughs> There's a there was a lot of religion, a lot of churches, a lot of ceremonies. Right. I as a kid, you don't understand because. Greek Easter is a week after Catholic Easter, except on leap year. They come together. Wow. So it was like, there'd be one year we went to both grandparents' house. And then there'd be three years where it's like, well, why aren't we going to our grandparents? It's like, well, it's next week. It's like, well, why are we doing it next week? Like, you don't un- like understanding yeah. the calendars. and. Um, well, also a lot of some of these things, as you said, have the same name, <laughs> like two Easters. Yeah. I mean, for a kid, that's like. You have no idea what's going on. It's like, oh, more gifts. Great. So to overgeneralize slightly, right, my experience of. Greek culture and Italian culture is fairly open, big-hearted. Mm-hmm. Was there any sort of um, tension between those two cultures in your house or, or anything vying for your kind of uh, affections? No, there was always a lot of food on the table. Yeah. There was always gardens and backyards. And yeah. F- fresh vegetables. Were you first generation American? Second. Second. Okay. Um, so it's interesting because like both both my parents grew up in households where nobody wanted to speak a foreign language because they were afraid of everybody being looked at as being an immigrant. So they wanted them to be. Really? So not knowing that when you're a kid, you could like absorb like a million different languages. And like I have a friend who's. You mean if they're just swirling around you? Yeah. yeah. I have a friend who's, he's Italian. His wife's Chinese. Mm-hmm. Their baby is speaking Mandarin. Yeah. Italian yeah. and English all at once. So yeah. like the age of three, he's like talking in three different languages. And it's like this amazing thing to see like this child go through. Um, yeah. So, 
but grew up in these beautiful households where my grandparents were always full of life and always, you know, it was always about food and that's kind of just how things were. And it was that warmth of hospitality and just coming to a table, no matter if it's just like simple greens that are boiled with rice and a piece of fish, if it's like a big Sunday roast, if it's, you know, it was always, there was always great things at the table, Mm -hmm. but that never existed outside of my house. Like I grew up. It was like, oh, there's a place to go get a steak and cheese. And there was right. like the pizza place down the street. Was it hard like, for you to eat at your friend's homes when you were a kid? Sometimes. Yeah. It'd be like the, you go and it'd be the Campbell's mush, cream of mushroom soup on a chicken breast baked in the oven. It's like super dry. And you're yeah. just like, oh, this is great. Yeah, right. Well, first of all, you had this other thing that you started to, to pursue. Fat, the, tell me exactly. what were you? What, when did you decide you were going to consider that road before you ended up um, switching gears? I was graduated high school. Mm-hmm. I broke my foot my senior year playing baseball. Realized you're not going to play baseball for the rest of your life. Did you think you might have? I mean, when you're 18, you're you're invincible, right? You think the world's at your your doorstep. But you thought you might have tried to go pro. I mean, you want to continue to play until you can't play anymore. Right. But I mean, you were good. We obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But then that came to a screeching halt. You learn yeah. kind of the experience of failure, um, and you not knowing that failure. Well, you didn't succeed. at, you know, I want to do this, and you couldn't do it, right? So, yeah. I mean, that's the first card that teaches you it's time to pivot. It's time to do something different. So, yeah. was that hard? It, it was a tough period going going through that, and then kind of like aimlessly going through community college and not yeah. trying to figure out. My dad's like, you should go to computer science. Your uncle, look at him, and works for AOL. And right. Traveling the world and all this. And it's yeah. like, it just wasn't for me. And yeah. I ended up sitting a lot in art classes. And then at that point, I like, I started cooking for myself because I had to become a little more self-dependent. Sure. And then I started working in retail and then found clothing, and then I went to work for a gentleman by the name of Eduardo DePandi. Mm-hmm. Um, he had this shop in Bethesda, Maryland at the time. And I went to work for him as kind of like, let me, like, through retail and then learning how a tailor shop works. And then I start looking to go into a design school and then take a trip to Italy. Yeah. And I remember getting off the train in Rome, and we're staying in, on the Via Vittorio Manuele, and there's just, like, something different in the air. And like walking around the streets and people eating in the trattorias and the cafes and sitting in the Campo di Fiore having beers at one o'clock at night. And there's like 5,000 people out there just <laughs> loving life. And it's like, where, where, why doesn't this exist back at home? Like, yeah. I didn't understand it. Yeah. Traveling through the Tuscan countryside, going to Venice. Yeah. Like, by the time we got to Milan, it was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to cook. So I went back and cook. I went to culinary school. Okay. My dad thought it was insane. <laughs> Did you cook with either of your parents or, or any of your grandparents growing up? Did I mean, you ever help out? Or I mean, there wasn't this like I was always in the kitchen chopping. I don't, I don't have those beautiful yeah. stories to say. Like I would, like we do a tomato fonduta at Masseria as part mm-hmm. of our bread welcome, and mm-hmm. it's, it's this tomato sauce that gets cooked down for hours and hours and hours, and it's it's the one thing of like tomato sauce sitting in a pot on the stove that starts to dry on the outside of the rim. So you, as a kid, you take a piece of bread and you swipe the side and it's got this like sugary umami beautifulness. So that's like, those are my memories of childhood. Mm -hmm. But most of it was, you were outside, you were here. But food was always 
a centerpiece, but it was never it was never something that I thought of like I was going to do. And then as I was in school learning to cook for myself, you know, you have the Food Networks coming out. So yeah. you're watching people like Mario Batali and Emeril Lagasse yeah. and all these like you had the Iron Chefs in Japan and like it was just such an entertaining thing and like you see the professional side of what yeah. cooking is. Yeah. And it just opens your mind to like there's other things out there. Yeah. And then seeing Europe and it's, you know, so that's just that's what lit that fire. And I went to school, started cooking, and and that's where it started. Given that that wasn't something that you were that into as a kid, right? And given that your experience was that of a diner, right, in these places, or a passerby, mm-hmm. right? Front of house, right? What do you think drew you to being a chef initially as opposed to being like a maitre d' or being an, you know, a, a, an owner or a restaurateur, which eventually you became? But, I mean, what do you think drew you to the, to the back of the house, to the cooking part of it? Once I started cooking, the end goal was always to have my own restaurant. Have your own joint, yeah. Um, and in just the kitchen is where I, I went to. I also think there's, there's also this... If you were to go to school in Europe, you go to a hospitality school, right? Yep. So you have the ability to learn front of the house standards or you go and you learn back of the house mm-hmm. where here, I guess you go to Cornell if you want to learn. Like, <laughs> I mean, outside of that, like there's yeah. not, there's not hospitality schools yeah. in the sense of what. There's certainly no, not the celebrated ones. But right? there's culinary schools, oh, sure. right? So yeah, you learn to right. cook. Yes. And that was just like the path as you go and you start researching things yeah. and you get into a kitchen and then it's somebody hands you a knife kit and you're yeah. like, whoa, wow, this is great. Don't yeah. cut your fingers off. And it's like, you know, <laughs> you start burning things and messing things up and then things start to click. And yeah. So you, you went to culinary school? In Gaithersburg, Maryland, at okay. a school that just shut down, L'Academie de Cuisine. Okay. It was open for 40 years. Uh, Francois Dino did a very good job in helping to support the restaurant industry in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, How old were you when you jumped into that? Uh, just turned 20. I was one of the younger people in my class. There you were was a lot younger of younger people, a lot of career changers. There was some career changers. There was people that wanted to get into the food world because mm-hmm. now food was becoming more like, I mean, at the time, right. With the introduction to food network, like people were trying to, to write and get mm-hmm. into it and try to like, there's multiple avenues, right? Yes. Now you can go into and food with the system. That's, mm-hmm. that's not just your traditional restaurant system, Yeah. but you need, the culinary background to get yes. there. So, your end goal was always to do Italian. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. This sounds certainly from the name sounds like this was a classic Western school, and that it was this was a I was French classically trained technique. French. Right. So, was that it? The question I was going to ask, if you had said yes, I was had my sights set on Italy. Was I think there's so there's so much that's so different. Between those two cuisines, right? But there's a lot of similarities. So there's the evolution of the Tuscan court that goes to Paris that helps Mm. with Caterina de' Medici that helps to teach, Mm -hmm. right? And there's there's just this – the way that food comes together through cultures and how people learn through other people. I mean, that this is something that we're dealing with now as I'm researching the Greece – the Greek restaurant where – there's a place in Puglia that was called the Magna Grecia, which mm-hmm. was the Greater Greece, and there was a line that basically separated Puglia from Italy from Greece in Italy. And the influence from the Baroque period that came into Puglia, where my family's from, so you can see it through some of the sculptures and some of the figurines, like the Pumi, that's a mm-hmm. sign of good luck. And 
and then how you know the Roman Empire at one point was consuming all of Greece and how did that go and the migration of food and people as they go back and forth I mm-hmm. mean you're looking at you know a two hour three hour boat ride right that separates yes two different civilizations but right. they're eating pretty much the same style yeah right the food crossover is very is very similar so it's like if we're sitting at the french border between piedmont and france and i'm eating a tomato does that make it a french cuisine or italian cuisine right yeah. now there's things that get very deep as you go in and then the nouvelle cuisine and the refinement yep. and, but it was good to have the background of cooking mm-hmm. um because there is some similarities and then mm-hmm. when you get into sauce working and all these other things uh, but when i was in school there was there was a one chef that there was like five guys you could go work for in D.C. at the time mm-hmm. in 2000. Okay. And that was pretty much it. There Who would like, they have been? Who would you have put on that list? So you had Michelle Richard that was there. Mm-hmm. The late Michelle Richard, yeah. Uh, Roberto Donna, who I went to go mm-hmm. work for. Um, you had – Jose had two restaurants at the time, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, you had Jeff Bubin, or you have Jeff Bubin, and you have Robert Wiedemeyer. Mm-hmm. Those were kind of like the big guns in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, Gerard Pango restaurant was open for three more years after I started in culinary school. So mm-hmm. he was an icon, youngest mm-hmm. two Michelin star chef from Paris, came over mm-hmm. in the 80s. Um, Yannick Cam was there. But there was like, there wasn't, like you go to New York, there's like 3,000 kitchens you can go work in. <laughs> More or less, yeah. Now in D.C., there's probably 50 Different several, places, like dozen, as several a, dozen, yeah. As a young cook, you could yeah. go and get great culinary experience from, and across all kinds of styles, mm-hmm. right? So you can learn if it's you want to go into an Asian kitchen, you can do that. If you want to go into an Italian kitchen, you can do that. You can do you can go into a French kitchen, so French, now, Spanish, classic, modernist, like you can you kind of do whatever you want. A great diversity of yeah. being able to learn. So when I got out of culinary school. I did my internship with Roberto Donna, and I spent two years with him in the laboratorio, and then it was time for me to move on. So I went to him, and I was like, where do I go? And he's like, well, there's two places you can go to. Because if you're going to stay in Italian, you're going to have to go. There's this place that just opened up in Tyson's Corner called Maestro. Because all the other Italian guys have worked for me in the city, so you're just going to learn the same thing over, and that's it doesn't make that's any funny. sense. Yeah. Or you go work for Michel Richard. So you either go French or you go in Italian. So now it's like you're making a decision. Mm. So I put my resume in both places, and I get a phone call back from Fabio, and I end up in Tyson's Corner, and I move out of the city, and I spend the next five years out at that restaurant. This is what's interesting to me. There's a chef named John Sedler, mm-hmm. who a lot of people won't know that name, unfortunately. But he had a, most recently a place called Rivera, which closed, but it was a four-star L.A. Times restaurant in downtown L.A. It was amazing. Years ago, he had a place called St. Estef in, in L.A., which was a really important place. He was sort of um, an apostle of uh, the late Jean Bertrandu, who mm-hmm. was like a Nouvelle Cuisine guy, very elaborate plating. And he tells this story that when he was a young cook, he went to try to get a job with Wolfgang Puck. And Puck says, back in the days when you could knock on a kitchen door and find yourself face-to-face with Wolfgang Puck, and Puck says, uh, maybe come back tomorrow. And then he drove over to L'Hermitage and went and asked uh, Jean Bertrandu if he could work for him. And he said, yeah, and hired him, right? And Sedler has said, like, if Puck had said yes, I never would have gone to the other place. I would have been a totally different 
person. Mm-hmm. I would have had a different career. And um, similar experience. Is that similar to you? Do you think if you had gone to Michelle Richard, you might have I ended went to up Michelle following? Richard. No, but do you think you might have followed that pathway? I like that's the thing. Like you can't yeah. A B test this one, right? right? So it's like it was easier it for me. Been, to, it's a possibility historically. It was, could have maybe happened. Yeah, it was easier for me to work. It would have been easier for me to go to Citronelle to work. Yeah, because I was living in the city. Sure. And I went in, and you know they're like, okay, we'll try to set something up, and it just kind of like fizzled out. Yeah. And I get a phone call from Fabio, and it's like, go out there, and it's like, it's like, all right, here we go. Yeah. Like that's the direction it is. And that's um, right. Yeah. I staged at the French Laundry when we closed for the summertime, and there was an opportunity to go out to Yountville. Mm-hmm. But I ended up taking a sous chef position at Maestro, so it was taking another step up. Like so, like when you get to these crossroads, it's like, what happens if I do this? Yeah. Like, where would I have gone if I moved to California? Mm-hmm. But then I take a sous chef position, and then become bigger and then I end up having my own restaurant. So it's like what that path, like where it's going to take you, you, you're never going to know the answer. It's more kind of like following your gut on what feels, what feels better. When you look back, does it feel inevitable that you ended up doing what you do? Like, in other words, maybe you would have gone to someone like Richard and maybe you wouldn't have found the same satisfaction. Do you think you would have maybe found your way ultimately to this? It could have been, I could have ended up going back to Italian. Um, I think the, the interesting thing is just kind of like watching. And that's like now that I have the ability to influence younger cooks, yeah. you can see where it's like, all right, you need to do this. And somebody makes a decision and it's like, you really shouldn't go there. Like, I, mm. like you're better suited to do this. But I don't want to make – and you see the guys that end up doing something because they want this whatever shiny new thing is. And it's like, ooh. And then they're like, oh, we made a mistake. Or we did this. Or I want to yeah. like – Because it's – you're and the you're developing. You're learning a skill set. Yes. And the more knowledge and depth and the harder people make you strive for something is what's going to continue to drive what our food scene is. Yeah. What most appeals to you about Italian food? I don't know if I can go more than two days without eating pasta. So interesting. <laughs> There's something magical about yeah. it. Yeah. What's your favorite pasta dish? If you can do that. I think that's a tough one. Yeah. Um, if you're going to come over to my house, yeah. you're... Always going to have the ability to get spaghetti al yolio. Nice. It's okay. beautiful. It's simple. It's always there. Pomodoro or no? Nope. Okay. Just olive oil and chilies That's and it. garlic. And thinly sliced garlic. You brown it or you get it before it browns? And just let it melt away. Okay. And then put a little water in it. And then the toss. pasta. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, to me, it's the simplicity, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's the it's the... The fact that you can achieve an effect that so many, like when you just said, I can't go more than two days without, everyone listening to this knows what that means, right? Mm. But then you look at like most recipes, like the one you just named, I'm obsessed right now with, I I just made it for the first time ever because you have to go a little bit out of your way to get guanciale. I'm making uh, Bucatino al Matriciana. I'm I'm obsessed. It's unbelievable. I'm obsessed. So there's a great butcher shop in the one town over from me, Campbell Meats, you're welcome. And uh, I call. I said, "Do you guys do guanciale?" Yeah, yeah. How much? I said, "Give me a pound because it'll, you know, it last." And I've been every two days, every three days, even just for myself at lunch. I was on the on a phone call the other day, and on the phone call, I decided, you know what, this call is going to go a while. I'm going to make my next one. Put the water on, slice, uh, dice the guanciale, slice. I don't know if the classic. I put a little bit of garlic. I use red onion. Uh, a tiny bit of tomato paste, and then crushed tomatoes. That's and then the pecorino. Mm-hmm. And a lot of black pepper. 
that's it. But that dish is amazing. <clears throat> so it's so satisfying to eat it. Roberto is from Alba. Okay. And we're working in the Laboratorio. And you you learn about truffles in culinary school, yeah. but nobody's like, here's a pound of white truffles. No. Like no, I start working in the my first for the first season, it's the beginning of fall. So yeah. we're coming back. The lab closes in the summer, and then we'd open up in September. I'm 21 at the time. Yes. Here comes this guy walking in with a cooler. Sets it down. Yeah. I'm like, don't even know what's going on. Opens this box up, and all of a sudden, there's this perfume in the room. I'm yeah. like, what is that? Yeah. And then I learn about white truffles. It's like, oh, my God. Like, this captivating smell. Yeah. So... We still do this dish at Masseria mm -hmm. because for me, like, I don't know if there's a better way to eat truffles because it's tagliini mm -hmm. or tagine in Piedmont mm -hmm. dialect. Garlic, butter, olive oil, anchovies, all melted down, a little bit of toasted walnuts. That's it. And then, like, Parmesan and, like, a half and pound of white truffles. Yeah. And it just like the salty, the cheese, the butter, the fat, like all of it just like comes together with that beautiful, delicate flavor. And it just like, it's like a symphony happens, but it's three ingredients. Yeah. And it's so great. Yeah. It's amazing. And as we did it in the laboratory every white truffle season, and it was just like, you get this, it was just like this magical moment. Yeah. And it could also be the fact that this was the first time I was introduced to this product. Sure. You know? Not growing up in gastronomy yeah. and traveling the world to yeah. eat, like, what's a truffle? And then yeah. you learn about it, and yeah. it's like, there you go. Yeah. It's like a drug deal. It's like, the first one's free. Next yeah. one's going to cost you. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, tell me about the transition. You said you always wanted to be an owner, right? Tell mm -hmm. me how you, how you eventually got to that position, how you made that happen for yourself. First of um, all, how did you know when you were ready to do that? Because I think that's a huge moment in anybody who goes from... I mean, going from being a cook or a sous chef to being the top person in the kitchen, that's a huge leap. And then ownership is a whole nother. Even things that you thought, people have told me this, our second guest ever on the show was Amanda Cohen. I was like, what was the difference from being the chef of a restaurant to being, and she gave me this like laundry list of stuff that you would think <clears throat> you kind of already knew. But what was it for you? Um, I moved up to New York and did the reopening of Fiamma. Mm -hmm. And then I was presented an opportunity to be a partner in a restaurant so this would have been in new york no in dc in dc so i moved back to dc uh -huh. timed it perfectly with the financial crisis yeah so everything fell apart restaurant deal fell apart everything you know and a lot of people at that era were scrambling to find jobs sure. and this. so i end up I end up getting a job to work with the shook bajaj in dc mm -hmm. if anybody knows him he's got 11 restaurants great operator um, and I worked with him for five years. He taught me how to run a business. Mm. Did he teach you explicitly, like, okay, you're going to do this now. Here's how you do it. Like, da, da, da. And, or was it by osmosis? Um, Did you just at the get beginning, tax and you kind of learn how to At the beginning, it's like, this is how you operate my, the kitchens that you're going to run in my restaurants. Would and so you're giving, so he would actually teach. You're giving guidelines. Yes. And then this is how you have to do it. And then we ended up developing this beautiful relationship and he would spend the time with me and walk me through processes and things that are going on. So it's, it's more about 
understanding how to keep the lights on, mm-hmm. right? And payroll and all these other how things. How to run that, a profitable restaurant. And how you cash flow and how to understand what these pieces are. Because yeah. when you're a cook, like you're worried about the thing that's going on that plate and it's going to be the best thing that I can possibly make. Yeah. And then you have to learn how to run a business. Yeah. So I thought I was ready at the age of 27 to open a restaurant. Yeah. And the universe kind of dealt that card to say, no, you're not ready yet. Okay. We're going to... F- th- so the crash was bad for, for, the, for most people. But it it, was, saved I mean, your, it, it was, probably saved you a lot of pain. Uh, probably a ton yeah. and a lot of money. Um, and a lot of money, yeah. So then well, I ended up working for five years and then it, I broke, taught myself how to write a business plan mm-hmm. and I had some mentorship with some other people outside that helped me kind of direct things. And, and it was like working two full-time jobs, trying mm-hmm. to find a restaurant space, trying to continue to operate a restaurant and then... A deal came through, and I I went to with Masseria. I went and I signed. I guaranteed a lease with no money lined up. I was like, I'm gonna figure this out. Mm. And then two days, two or three days later, I meet my business partner now. And how did you two know each other? Um, a friend of mine introduced me, and we started talking. With that in mind, because he knew I was raising money. Yeah. Um, he's like, talk to Paul. So okay. I there and I talked to Paul, and he's like, okay. And after the first year Masseria was open, I was sitting down, I was having a drink with him. I was like, why did you invest in me? He was like, because you had balls to do what you did. Mm-hmm. And I knew you, like, you were going to do whatever it had to do to make things happen. And opening up the first day, it was terrifying. It was gratifying. It was everything. It's like, are people going to show up? Yeah. And then people showed up. Yeah. And... You just take it day by day. And then you're learning how to manage people. Yeah. I've spent time working every job in a restaurant. So I've bartended. I've managed a floor. I've sold wine. I barbacked. I started as a dishwasher. Mm-hmm. I run the kitchen. So I, I didn't feel comfortable being able to open a restaurant not knowing what everybody else does. So understanding the struggles of having to go to a table where somebody's really being a giant pain in the ass. Where it's like when you're in the kitchen and some guy comes back, it's like, oh, I got this table. You know, mm-hmm. most people are like, get the fuck out of here. Like, you know. It's yeah, just, right. So understanding the true kind of hospitality operations of what happens in a restaurant is, yeah. was that piece. And then it just built into like when we built Masseria, it was like, all right, you're going to come into my house. You're coming to my house to eat. Yeah. And then it happened. And then we started to build it up. And then it just kind of, it grew its wheels and you learn how it takes time to build a team up. Mm-hmm. You have to learn how to fire people. You have to learn how to see through some of the BS that happens and with just people being people where it's like, I know you're better than this. Mm. That's your approach. We have to coach you. We have to like, how are you a superstar one day and you're nothing the next day? Like what's going on? You know, is there personal problems at home? You know, and have then- you become more patient? It sounds like you've become more patient with people's idiosyncrasies, weaknesses, like when you use the word coach, to me, that's a, it comes up a lot in interviews on this show. People, a lot of people end up in kitchens, played sports as kids. And coaching is not just the X's and O's, right? It's often the psychology of how to get maximum performance out of people. That's the well, analogy. It, you, like when you hire people, you're investing in them, mm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a cost. Like I got to put you through two weeks of training. We have to buy uniforms for you. We have to do this. Like right. I expect you to perform so when you're not what's going on 
Are, are my failing? Is mm -hmm. our management team failing? Are you failing? Where's the issue and what's mm -hmm. causing this? So you just don't want to, like, it's easy to go in, you know, there's the philosophy of hire slow, fire quickly, but it's like you also have to be able to know that make sure, like, are you providing the proper tools? Mm -hmm. Are people getting to where they need to be? It's a two-way street to some extent. Mm -hmm. I mean, you. I mean, ultimately, you're the boss, but you can have moments of self-reflect. Like, did you play a role in that? Mm -hmm. Do you? It's such a um, the chemistry of a restaurant, front of house, back of house, and how the two interact. There's such an even in huge, even in restaurants with 100 plus employees, right? There is an alchemy to how it works, Yep. right? You need to get the right mix of people so that it comes out right. And not every restaurant operates the same. Right, not every restaurant's for every, you could have someone who's like, uh, you know, to use uh, sports terms, an all-star player in one restaurant, and they could come to another restaurant and be the absolute outcast of that situation, right? Yep. So, I mean, there's places where a hot shot fits in, and then there are places where they won't, you know? It, for me, it's really about how everything operates together holistically it's a team yeah right yeah and so it's having one person who's kind of rogue doesn't do the whole as a good right even if they right. have incredible chops at whatever their task is so when you see some of these great restaurants like if you go to like an 11 madison park and you go to these places where you see how dining rooms interact with kitchen staff that interact and you have this kind of flawless effortless service that happens is what I mean it's what we try to strive for but it takes time to find it took us 18 months to get our team at Masseria to that point mm. there were some losses there were some gains there's a back and forth and then you know things really start to like click into place have you is there are there any particular either questions that you've developed since you started being an owner that have made you better at hiring the right people? Uh, have you started to fall back more on instinct than you did early on? Like even if someone says all the right things and has the right resume, eh, it just doesn't feel right. Like how have you improved at keeping the right team in place? I'm still trying to figure that out. Really? It's, there's like there, there's going to be the person that's going to come in that on paper looks like a godsend. And you're like, wow, rock star. And, knows how, awesome. to, and knows how to interview well. And they come in and it's like, how did you work in these restaurants? Yeah. There's no way. <laughs> and then you have somebody. And you don't just mean stodges. You mean they had like, like, you, uh, they you, had like a year at each of these stops. How do you spend two years at X, X restaurant in yeah. New York? Like there's no way that they would let you get away with any of this stuff. Yeah. And then you have the people. And it's, all, it's usually the people that you never think are going to succeed end up becoming like the diamonds. Mm -hmm. And you're like, wow, where did you come from? Right. Like. And it's really about attitude, willingness, and, yeah. you know, it's also, you have, which is the beauty about the restaurant business, it's like the world of wine, it's, you have different personalities in different places. Mm -hmm. So, like, your personality might not necessarily mesh really well with what we're doing, mm -hmm. which is fine, mm -hmm. but you're, like, really great to go work with yeah. somebody like Danny Meyer, yeah. right? Because that's, you fit in with whatever they are. Mm -hmm. Not saying that we're better or worse, mm -hmm. but it's just... Certain people, right? Yeah. When you start learning about personalities and mm. managing people as opposed to managing food costs. Mm -hmm. Because I spend most of my days like talking to people now. It's like there's always 
fires to put out or this mm-hmm. is going on or that. Mm-hmm. Like we're building a new team. We're seven months old at the at Officina at the wharf. And yeah. it's like there's 125 people on staff there. Maseria's, I would have thought more. It's given what it is. Well, this is a good segue. Talk mm-hmm. to well, first of all, why that name and describe the three coexisting so, entities to, to listeners. So Officina is workshop in Italian. Mm-hmm. And it's we built it out as trying to put the the craftsmanship that goes behind the products that we're creating and selling and producing. Um, so we have a market on the first floor that has a butcher shop, salumeria, cheese cave, bakery, fresh pasta production, prepared foods, along with Italian specialty products. So a lot of the things that we're using in our dishes, you have the ability to buy from our shelves. So it's like you're shopping in our dry storage, basically. Um, with that, there's a small cafe that's attached to it that's opens with the market, does breakfast, lunch, dinner, sandwiches, mm-hmm. pizza taglio. Mm-hmm. Just like a beautiful place like walk in, in and out, have a Negroni. Then you go upstairs. The second floor is the Trattoria, which is got a meat influence to it because we have the butcher shop downstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a rounding of fish. Six, seven pastas, a lot of the classics. So Bucatini alla Matriciana's on there. Uh, straight up classic? Straight up classic. I mean, everyone has their, so own, that's little, like the everyone one, has their own little twist. But That's I mean, the one pasta I eat there probably four times a week. Oh, it is? Yeah. Okay. I saw your, a glimmer in your eye when I mentioned <laughs> it. <laughs> um, cheese salami. So that, that restaurant's built to come in, share, order a bunch of stuff. But it's yeah. also a place like you can come and have like a beautiful bowl of pasta, out the door, glass of wine, yeah. done. Awesome. Then we have a private dining space that sits 60 people on our third floor. And then we have a 3,500 square foot terrazza that overlooks the Potomac and the old and the fish market. Amazing. So it's a beautiful space. Do you teach any? Do you have any teaching there? Do you have any classes there? Uh, we haven't started doing classes. We just did our first wine class with our beverage director, John Filkins. Okay. Um, so teaching people how to like navigate a wine list yeah. and order wine. And it's, it's one of those things. And we had a pretty big turnout. And you would see because... It's, it can be an intimidating thing when you sit down in a restaurant and you have to run a business dinner, but you have, to, you have to understand how to order wine. And maybe you like your one thing, but you're buying for four clients that are in from out of town. Yeah. So, like, how do you navigate that? How do you talk to a sum? How do you order things? Like, what are you guys eating? What's going on? So, mm-hmm. we had a lot of people turn out for that. Um, so, as we're growing, we'll grow into more educational pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, How'd you put the – now, you talk about putting together a team, right? Doing doing the various things you're doing there. I mean, I where did I guess the word I would use is artisans. Like, where did you did you did you grow your own and train your own, or did you find people who were skilled in these various disciplines that are living under that roof? So when we opened Masseria, Jamil, who's our pastry chef, uh, we bake our own bread. We did everything in house, but we were like bursting at the gills. We had people coming at five o'clock in the morning to yes. run a sixty seat restaurant. Yeah. So we could bake bread and produce pasta because yeah. we're working in this tiny kitchen with yeah. two ovens. Yeah. Baking in Dutch ovens to get the effect of a bakery. Wow. So then we built the bakery out. Yeah. So we took everything in-house yeah. over there. So now yeah. we commissary it over to Masseria. Um, so, and then he starts to build up the bake shop team. Yeah. Uh, the butchers, uh, a friend of mine, Dan O'Brien, who helped me open Bibiana, yeah. 
who had seasonal pantry came down and he's helped me put the market together. Mm-hmm. Um, he's moving back to Rochester. So watch out for him. He's supposed to be opening up a, another seasonal pantry. So keep your eyes open for him. Me watch out for him? Everybody. Like okay, it's it's yeah. going to be a... I actually, everyone thinks Westchester County and upstate New York are the same thing, but they're <laughs> actually like several hours apart. Yeah, Rochester. But, but I, mean, I do get up that way. So that's good so, to know. Yeah. Um, I don't know when he's going to open, but he's going back to do it. So, okay. And he was great kind of helping to put the butchers together yeah. and just kind of helps the market stuff yeah. to go. Um, and then you just start piecing things together. And it takes, you know, it takes time, especially now and like what what's going on in the hospitality industry because there is such a growth. Yeah. But because of this growth, yes, there's not enough people to support across the board where 15 years ago you could you could hire and open a brand new restaurant and you'd have a ton of people like that but it takes a while to find the talented people like it's a cook's market now it's mm-hmm. not a chef or owner market correct now. yeah that's that's the sea change in the industry service <coughs> like finding yeah like, how do you incent like you don't want to poach people but at the end of the day like you have to open a restaurant yeah. Right, so it's like, where's where's this team? It's not like somebody's going to sprinkle some fairy dust and be like, "Here you go, here's 15 beautiful captains and 10 back servers and four managers and eight sous chefs." And can I ask what your style is, if you don't mind? We just met. I don't want to be, but you got a you got a serious poker face. I can't read you at all. Now you're laughing, but <laughs> like um, even my first question, what were you like? Because you'd have to ask my mom. <laughs> You know, like, yeah. Do you keep it close close to the vest? What's your management style? Um, that's a good question. I don't. I mean, it's. it's Have you not? Me. Do you not think of it? So you don't really. It's not calculated. No, it's. Every day is a different day, and you're always dealing with different sets of challenges. And, and I you think, let it flow from who you naturally are. And that's, you know, you have to you have to learn when to put your foot down and when to when to drive the bus and when to let things kind of take their course. And Uh that's, you know, when I first started cooking my, this chef that was the instructor in my culinary school was, he said the two hardest things in a restaurant are cash flow and consistency. Mm. And then he followed up and he's like, what's the most consistent restaurant in the world? And everybody's like thinking and thinking. He's like McDonald's. He's like, because no matter where you go, McDonald's is going to be the same thing across the board. So when I had a, before I was lucky enough to make a living as a writer, I had a marketing job. That's how I stumbled into it. I repped a lot of top restaurants in New York. But my claim to fame, what I refer to as my Lufthansa heist for people who have seen Goodfellas, Uh was that I wrote the proposal that landed us the Starbucks account. Okay? You know who their most sought after employees were? People who had worked for McDonald's. Really? Yeah, because they were organized. They goal oriented they and they knew how to achieve what you just said i mean coffee's different than like building a burger with you know the, the hot and the cold and the all that but they understood it they understood the value of it and yeah those people who had been through their program who had worked there were were prime uh hires for them when i, I see mean, certain people that have come from certain restaurant groups like they'll have that edge or advantage to come onto our team because mm-hmm. I know they're coming from a place. Like if they've spent enough time into a system, it's like you've gone through the training and the support yeah. where it's like when you're a small restaurant and you have one going into two outlets, like mm-hmm. you don't have the infrastructure of like a Steven star, right? Right. We have 20 restaurants and the yeah. 
the training they go through and all that. Like it's or Steve Hansen, mm-hmm. because famously they account for every ounce of alcohol. Uh, it was in their in their reporting. When we did the Rio Benefiama and we worked in the BR guest group. Oh, sure. Right. Am I right or wrong? Yeah. No, there was like coming from a hotel where you're operating in a yes. single independent restaurant yes. inside of a hotel. I mean, it was a Ritz-Carlton and you had all the Ritz-Carlton standards and everything. Going into somebody who like we were opening Fiamma. They were opening up Dos Caminos in Las Vegas. Sure. And then they were doing two other restaurants in New yeah. York. Yeah. Within like three months. Yeah. And I was like. This is insane. Yeah. How do you do this? And they're like, oh, we're going to be here for two weeks here. Yes. And then we go over here and we're going to do this. And it's like, there was like a team, there were systems, like, and we're like, where do we find our meat cook from? (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like one's the body and one's the soul, right? It's just like, you you see some of the way some of these operators are operating and it's just like, it's the weld oil machine, right? Yeah. I mean, I had a friend who worked for Hanson years ago and told me about the reporting on the island. I was like, what? And, I, and this person was on the spirit side or the wine side. And I'm like, so that's not the restaurant. Those aren't the restaurants where people meet up after work for like a couple of rounds of free booze. They're like, you could never do that here. You can never do it. You can't make it, you can't make it fit into the software. You know, <laughs> like someone's going to wonder where it went. You operate in a fairly traditional vein. Mm-hmm. We've had an ongoing conversation on this show. Uh, a couple of months ago, Kathy Wims, who's in uh, Portland, Oregon, who has a very classic Italian restaurant, was on. More recently, the pastry chef Kelly Fields was on, and we were talking about her signature uh, dish, which or dish, her signature thing, which is a chocolate chip cookie, right? And it seems to and I something that I've become very sort of. I don't know, a little bit obsessed with in my thinking recently is what is great food, right? What gets recognized as great versus what is great? You know, there's a lot of, there's been a, an, uh, it's, it's very common to point out that even people who cook in the most modernist way, which often gets all the attention on social media, seems more difficult. So a lot of times that's the stuff that wins awards, right? But everyone knows no cooks eat like that after service. You know, they go out for Italian food. They go out for tacos. They, okay. So more and more I'm coming around to, and this is no disrespect to anyone who cooks in that ve- the first vein because I eat like that all the time and I have a huge appreciation for it. But can't a taco from a truck be great? You know, is, does it exist on a different plane than something served at, I don't want to name a restaurant, but a three-star Michelin restaurant? Mm-hmm. If, it bring, if it's perfectly executed and makes you really happy as a diner, is it any less, right? I'm wondering for you, have you ever thought about this issue? Do you, have you ever thought about the happiness that you're able to derive from operating in a fairly classic realm, from having a butchery be, you know, butcher shop or window, whatever, the counter being a part of your business? Have you ever wondered why you're able to find such satisfaction in that? Because I do think it's not as, I think people who identify as chefs are oftentimes not that happy to be sort of stewards of tradition. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's when I grew growing up cooking. Yeah. Um, I remember buying the first El Bulli book when it came out mm. and it was like, wow. Right. This is awesome. Through the looking glass. 
right? Yeah. Then you start, you get into the CD and you start like playing with it and it's like... Well, we have to say the CD was the interactive component mm -hmm. of like, that book and you could put it in and you could click on dishes and it would tell you the year and... When people it was had like CDs, a universe. right? Right, when, but it was like it was like a it was like a universe. It was like it was like a planetarium on your screen. Now I have a MacBook, and my MacBook doesn't have anywhere to put a CD in. So it's like, yeah. how do I how do I get this information yeah, out? Yeah. Um, but we digress. So go ahead. So El Bui. So you see it, and it's like I'm cooking in a fairly traditional style kitchen yeah. at Maestro, and it's just real food executed really well, best ingredients you can buy. Yeah, and it was like a great space we had a lot of great talented people working around us then you see this and then it's like oh my god and then like a year and a half later this guy comes in who just spent six months at obuli working for free chris and he gets there and like i remember we get this guy's resume and it's like oh, i got like a million questions and it's like talking <laughs> to him about like how do you make the caviar how do you do this and yeah. he's like sodium alginate i was like where do you buy sodium alginate? Yeah. Like calcium chloride. What yeah. do I have? like? I'm yeah. like dental companies are coming. I was like, what is this? Like how? Like we were just talking about like this whole food science piece where mm -hmm. it's you know how far can you push that wheel? Like you always have to keep reinventing. Mm. You know, it's for just as hard as the struggle as that is to poach a perfect piece of fish. Absolutely. It's like you go to a restaurant like La Bernadette and you get a Dover sole, right? But it's beautiful. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with either of them. I think it really falls into who are you as the, if, for lack of a better word, you're as the artist, you're controlling the paint colors. Which way are you going? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And how do you want to deliver it? Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with if you want to be modern and there's nothing wrong if you want to be classical. Mm -hmm. I think it's really what, for me, it's what you feel happy with. So as we're training people, it's like, this is what we're doing. Yeah. I hope my question came off right. I don't mean that there's anything wrong with either. No, no, no. I'm but like, I think oftentimes, like, your reaction to El Bui, right, would you have had a similar reaction? Well, it sounds like you're taking this interview full circle when you went over uh, to Italy mm -hmm. and saw the scene going on there that you described that seduced you initially. You had that kind of reaction. But there's always, that. like... I was going to say, would you have had that reaction yeah. to, like, your first Bucatini al Montrachana? Yeah. I mean, I still remember eating, thing like, a chicken liver crostini in a village that we stopped for lunch in Tuscany on the way to Florence. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I'd never had chicken livers before. Mm -hmm. They put this thing down, and I didn't know what it was. I put it on, I was like, wow, this is delicious. Yeah. What is this? And then you find yeah. out, and you're like, oh, okay. And then you start being more inquisitive, and you start asking more things. And it's, it, you look at how things evolve and how cuisines evolve. And that's, I mean, I guess this is a good kind of, like I'm looking at things now where cuisine, cuisines don't have borders. Mm -hmm. Governments create borders. Mm. Okay. Right? So World War One ends and Turkey's developed and Greece is developed and everybody has land reformations. Mm -hmm. This is what happened right now. There's a border that's drawn. Now, that's Turkish, and this is Greek. Now, there's cultural differences that happen, mm -hmm. or this is French, and that's Italian. Mm -hmm. But why, right? So it's like, because that's what you know the country as. But the people, like, food migrates. You look at, like, the cuisines in New Orleans and how, like, food migrated with slavery and where, the, where all this food has kind of yeah. spread yeah. throughout yeah. the globe, 
Yeah. Or you get up toward where Italy and Switzerland are close together, mm-hmm. and the food becomes remarkably similar on, on the two sides I mean, of the we border. Have, we have Italian cheeses that are coming from a Swiss. Technically, they're Swiss. Yeah. Or vice versa, yeah. because... I mean, the cows don't know where they're at, right? They're just yeah. grazing in a field, and they just walk over a mountain. Yeah, there I mean, they there are. are because, like you said, because you draw those lines and then centuries go by, there are dishes that are unique to each place. But well, and how much, how much food, like, tomatoes aren't native to Italy, yeah. right? Things have migrated and been put into put into cultures that have caused yes. things to evolve. Yeah. And, you know. Right, and they do, certain things do become more associated. Like, if you said it, uh, what... What's the most common thing? And you know, most people probably, if you're well, talking yeah. raw ingredient, they're going to say tomato or garlic or yeah. Yeah. who developed pasta first, right? right? Go ahead. Is it an Asian ingredient or yeah. is it an Italian ingredient? Like, yeah. there's, I have a book that has a pasta recipe dating back from 1392. Now, is it what we know as pasta today? Most likely not. What's the book? It's a little small book called Pasta and Pizza, and it goes through like the history. It's oh, like a awesome. sixty-page read. Uh-huh. I found it at Kitchen Arts and Letter. I was awesome. like, "This looks great." And like yeah. by the time I got to New Jersey on the train, I'd finished the book. Like it was just like. Well, we're sitting here at the Mermaid Inn on the Upper West Side. Uh, on seven, this is we're between eighty-seventh and eighty-eighth. Yeah. Um, I went to college about forty blocks north of here, and on. 79th Street years ago, on the south side of 79th, a little closer to Central Park, from where we're sitting right now, this place has been gone for decades, there was a restaurant called Noodles. And I only know it because you could get dinner there for $9.95, and I was a college student. But the whole idea was it was Asian and Italian noodle dishes. It was a sit-down, proper sit-down restaurant. Not fancy, but that was the concept. And they had two halves of the menu. And I wasn't into food at all at that time, but that was revelatory to me. I thought that was such a clever, I mean, it just seemed like a clever thing. But again, there's more to it than that. It is actually, they were making a point and probably not trying to. They probably just saw an article one day Mm -hmm. and said, oh, that's a cool, let's open a place called Noodles, you know, but. But it's, I mean, it's like the the history of food is a very big driver for me as a a person. So it's like understanding where things came from, yes. how they came about, what they were. Yeah. Like we do, um, so we have a, a dish made with grano arso, which is now becoming kind of a little, it's becoming a little more mainstream, but mm-hmm. like 10 years ago, I stumbled across this recipe. That's toasted wheat? What does it burnt. mean? It's burnt wheat. Yeah. So, and you start doing the research. Yeah. And in Puglia, there's this, ma- like Altamora is this bread mecca. Uh-huh. And if you've never been to Altamora, you should definitely go. There's... There's focaccerias there that are delicious. That one closed down at McDonald's when it opened up. Like this community is beautiful there. Yeah. So the history that, from my understanding, is that it's a very impoverished area as well. So the peasants would clean out the baker's ovens Ooh. and they would save all the spent flour from the decks that would get burnt. And out of necessity, they end up making this pasta. Mm-hmm. And so you think like burnt flour, it's going to be acrid and awful. So I'm like, all right, well, let's try this out. So I put a sheet tray of flour in the oven and I burn it. And then we make the pasta dough the first time. Falls completely apart in the water. It's like, wow. And it's like, oh, all the gluten's been destroyed. So then we add some more fresh semolina into it, mix it in, cut it, and then it sticks together. And then you eat it and it's got this like bittersweet taste to it. And you see like this... This beautiful piece of gastronomy that was created out of necessity and 
poverty that has this very sad story to it, but ends up becoming a very beautiful thing. So when you look at all these great dishes throughout the world that get created by things like this. Yeah. And b- created by people, again, I, 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 don't, I believe in positive stereotypes, mm-hmm. who, for whom eating delicious food was like a birthright. It was yep. like that's considered part of life, right? They're, they were going to find a way to make it. It doesn't matter how simple it is, right? right? But you're going to find, you're going to work it, find something, or add something to it, or until it, until you, it, you're going to take pleasure in eating it, right? That's that's I think the big sea change this country went through like 40, 50 years ago was the this, the, the food is more than sustenance. You got out of the. Uh Hungry man, microwave dinners sitting yeah, in front of the TV. Yeah, or the industrial uh, frozen peas and ca- I mean, listen, th- that's still how most people eat. <laughs> like, despite the narrative, that is, you know, I mean, go to go to a st- go to your local stop and shop, or go to your local food town, or go to your local AMP or Grand, whatever it is. There, that stuff. There's a convenience That's mostly thing, what's in the freezer section. You know, there's still plenty of canned vegetables out there. But when people but, slow down and eat, yes, they want great food. They want, yeah, more and more and more and more and more and, and more places and, and be a yeah. simply grilled pork chop and a salad. And yes. it could be where I think like your conversation about modern versus cloud, like it. I think there's avenues for both to exist in parallels, and it just depends on what you want to do. So it's and it gives the diners, the options to decide what they want to do. Like, do you want to go through and sit through that experience or do you want to go through and sit through a different experience? Yes. They're both great. It all depends on what you want. You keep, you've mentioned history several times. Okay. What is the benefit as a cook, as a chef, as for your cooks cooking your food in your restaurants? What is the importance of knowing the history. I mean, you can't go back in time and actually eat this stuff the way it was served originally, right? You can't do that. But what? How does knowing the context, the history, the origin story, if you can find it, of individual dishes affect how you and your team do what you do? Why does it matter? I, th- for me, it's especially like with Italian food, and now that we're learning into the Greek realm as well like having to tell that story it's trying to grasp the soul of what something's supposed to be because even if you want to evolve it a little bit or put your touch on it or take it to somewhere else you have to understand what that is to Mm -hmm. to get it so when you sit down and eat it takes you to that place it takes you to that moment even if you can't put words to that Mm -hmm. right even if an eater can't put words to that if you as a cook grasp that is this what you're saying trying to get that understanding of what you know when this was created what was going on how was this done like we're where would i've been eating it so we're doing uh we're doing a menu at masseria called the og menu that was to all the old chefs of dc that really got us to be a city that we're at today. So we paid homage to all these people and some of them have passed away. And then the ones that are alive opened their kitchens up and I got to spend time with them and learn what was going on. So it's like, I remember Gerard Pangot teaching his lobster and saltern sauce to me and Mm. at culinary school. And it was like, I didn't know what salterns was. Like my first wine experience was my grandfather drinking Carlo Rossi out of a gallon jug that was, most likely oxidized and matterized. And it was yeah. just like, so he had something on the table. Yeah. There, there was no like, yeah. what is Chateau de Camp? Like, what did, yeah. like, so yeah. you taste this and it's like, what is this? Yeah. 
So we did that dish for the menu for him. And so I'm, he's teaching us, comes to the kitchen, he's showing all the cooks what's going on. And so I'm talking to him. I was like, so my understanding is that you created this dish from when we were in school. We understood that it was created for Salterns as like, and he was like, no, 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 no. This was for the presidential election inauguration in 1982. And this was the last dish that was served in the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles. Wow. And it's like, what was that dining room like yeah. in 1982 eating this? I mean, there's like a full bottle of Salterns reduced down to nothing and then mounted with a pound of butter. And it's like this super lush, sweet and spicy. There's yeah. ginger in it. And you're just like. What was going on in that dining room, sitting in that space? But knowing that, right? Like you just said, ginger, right? To me, imagining that room, that's a that's a that is a situation that demanded elegance, that demanded a certain amount of people restraint. Are tie black tie and tails right. and gowns. Right. So to and- me, when you say ginger, I know right away from that context the gingers, and given that it's in France, right, that the ginger's not forward. That it's like a hint, mm-hmm. right? Whereas someone else, am I making? Is this what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Whereas if it was created, you know, in a, in an Asian country for a similar event, or came from like an Asian home cooking or something, it's going to smack you in the face. The ginger's going to be potent, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the decision you make at the stove as a cook. Is this what you're saying? Yeah, but learning yeah. that, learning like that, where this dish comes from and what's the history of that, and. Yeah. Was saying like but that's Ye- why it matters. Yannick Cam, he yeah. he did this thing called the Fabergé egg, and it's an egg that they put a scallop glass in, and it's a brandade made to order, gold nocetra caviar. So spending the day with Yannick, and he's like teaching me how to make scallop glass. Mm-hmm. And so I'm with one of the guys that used to be his sous chef, and he's like, so we're standing there and learning in the kitchen from him, and he's like, I was like, so where did you learn this? He was like, oh, my father, he's from Brittany. He's like, my father would make it every Sunday. And it's one of the most delicious things in the world. And he turned it into a sauce. He worked for one of the best sauciers in Paris before he came to the States. And it's like, so it's scallops and a bunch of leeks just slowly cooked down with vermouth. And then you get this like super luscious, rich sauce. And it just coats the bottom of the egg. And it's sole whipped into a brandade a la minute inside caviar and it's just like this beautiful piece of elegance but understanding like if somebody's just reading a book and it's like oh here's a scallop glass okay yeah. it's some refined michelle rue or yeah. whatever it yeah. no came from his dad who would chop up everything yeah. cook it on the stove and then out of that comes this beautiful piece of gastronomy yeah those are really useful illustrations thanks for all that well it was great to meet you you as well thanks um, for taking the really, time out i really want to try to i want to pronounce it right Of officina 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 okay Officina. Uh, sounds like one could spend an afternoon there. Yeah, we want you to. You come in, <laughs> <laughs> eat, have a coffee have in the a morning, coffee to refresh. eat, go hang how out. Early, how early do you open? How early? Uh, the market opens at 10 o'clock daily. Do you do bomboloni or no? Uh, we do on occasion. We okay. do hand stuffed cannolis, Oof. full gelato experience. Uh, we have sfogliatellas. Sfogliatellas, yeah. that's my pronunciation. So nice. they're a very challenging pastry to make. Labor intensive. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's but the beautiful. original version of what in the U.S. became lobster tails. Correct. Yeah. Which is, is filled with something different here. Yeah. yeah. They're, Those are filled with what? Polenta? No. Ricotta. Candy, ricotta. Candied orange? Candied orange, candy lemon. Yeah. Comes from the Amalfi Coast. Yeah. Created, yeah. Uh, created there in, uh, 
by, uh, by nuns. See, I didn't know that either. Santa Catarina. Okay. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank and you. We'll see you in D.C. Yes, sir. And that's our show for this week. Again, huge thanks to Nicholas Stefanelli and Eris Komorowski, our guests, both for those interviews and also for your patience. Again, I'd like to encourage all of you to check out our new website, andrewtalkstoschefs.com. Thanks to our engineer, David Tattashore. Heritage Radio Network is a co-producer of the show. And to all of you out there in podcast land, thank you for listening. And we will see you back here in about a week on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Mm-hmm.